0: Today is, of course, for Christians, the celebration of the most momentous day in all of human history. There is no other historical event that we celebrate, the founding of nations, military victories, or in our case, losses, the signing of treaties, the births or deeds of famous people. None of those events comes even close in significance to what we celebrate today, Because on this day, 2,000 years ago, history itself was transfigured. One era came to a close, and another era began. One era stemming back to the beginning of human history itself, to the beginning of the human race, came to a close on this day. And another era that reaches forward to the final fulfillment of God's healing purposes for creation came to birth. It happened on this day, 2,000 years ago, early in the morning, in a borrowed tomb somewhere in the hinterland of Jerusalem. The former age, marked by the reign or the domination or the oppression of sin and death and violence, was crucified. It died and was buried. Its power was broken and a new age, marked by liberty and love, by freedom and forgiveness, by healing and hope, came to birth today. Human history was changed forever. Things will never be the same because of this day. Because what happened on this day? Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And that changes everything. Things can never be understood the same way again because of today. So it's no wonder then for 21 centuries Christian worshippers all around the world and are doing it again today have cried aloud in joyous acclamation on Easter Sunday morning, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I mean, if ever there was an excuse to be a happy, clappy Christian, then Easter Sunday morning is it. In fact, for the first Christians, every Sunday morning was a miniature Easter. For them, it was not the Sabbath day that was most significant, although throughout the history of the Jewish people, the Sabbath day had been the most revered day of the week. It wasn't for the first Jewish Christians the Sabbath day that was most significant. It was the day after the Sabbath day which they called the Lord's Day, and they called it the Lord's Day because it was the day of Jesus' resurrection, the day the tomb was found to be opened. It was only later, uh, decades later, centuries later, that the Christians began to, separate, uh, to to celebrate an annual Easter celebration, and even then, the first Easter celebration were celebrations of the resurrection. It was only after that that the whole story of the Passion also got relived and retold. For the first Christians, every time they gathered on the Lord's Day, it was a celebration of the resurrection. Now, what I've said about the immense significance of Easter Day is, I believe, absolutely true. But it's also a declaration of faith, because not everybody believes in the resurrection. In fact, let's be honest, most people in our society don't believe in the resurrection. And even within the Christian community itself, there are many who would deny the historical veracity of Christ's bodily resurrection, prefer to see it as a myth or a symbol or a metaphor or a parable or an uplifting story about how it's possible to rise above adversity, but not a real historical event. And even those, and I'm sure all of you would fall into this category, even those who do believe that it really did happen in history are not entirely sure why they believe it or what the resurrection itself actually means, why it is so central and so important. As I have said to my students year in and year out, Christianity really was born as a resurrection movement. That's what it was. In its very earliest days, it was a resurrection movement, Everything depended on the resurrection, and we have, down through, the history, down through the centuries, we've inherited that understanding that this day is the most important and defining day in the Christian calendar, but many of us are not terribly sure why, what it is about the resurrection that really is significant. Many years ago, I saw an extremely disappointing television debate on the resurrection at Easter time. In fact, I was thinking that today you wouldn't even imagine the broadcasters thinking of putting a debate about the resurrection on television at Easter time. Uh, It is now so marginal in public consciousness that it doesn't bear mentioning at all. But go back 20 years, and this was a debate uh, between people on the the resurrection. One of the participants, the well-known Brian Edwards, was in the midst of arguing against this ridiculous idea that Christians propounded that Jesus rose from the dead. And in doing so, he made a very interesting comment. He said that if he were to become religious, he would want a faith that offered him comfort and certainty. Comfort and certainty were the two basic human needs he thought that religion is there to fulfill. But he couldn't accept that Christianity actually fulfilled them. It didn't supply the comfort and certainty that he would want were he to sign up. And yet, paradoxically, that is precisely what the Easter message offers. It offers comfort, or I would prefer the much robuster term, hope, and it offers certainty, or perhaps a better word there would be confidence. And I want to just reflect for a moment on those two ideas. The resurrection is a source of comfort or hope and the resurrection is a source of certainty or confidence. Do you remember the story in Luke 24 of the two disciples? Probably a husband and wife, Clopas and his wife most likely, on the road to Emmaus, just out of Jerusalem, returning home after the tragic events of Passover. They had accompanied Jesus into Jerusalem on what they had thought would be his triumphant conquest of the city and his installation as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and national saviour. But it had ended in absolute disaster. Jesus had been arrested. He'd been put on trial as the great pretender and he'd been subjected to the most ignominious and degrading form of public execution available. And these two, with others, had no doubt fled the city in fear and were heading home to try and pick up the threads of their life again, wending their way, frightened and ejected back to Emmaus. They must have felt utterly disillusioned, completely betrayed, confused, certainly bitterly disappointed, totally inconsolable. And then, A stranger joins them on their journey, and they tell the stranger of their profound disappointment. Jesus, they said to him, had been a prophet mighty in word and deed, a man of presence, a man who did wonderful things, a prophet mighty in word and deed. But they said, our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then you hear the pain of disappointment in their voice. They say, yet we had hoped, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had pinned all our hope on this guy and he had been crucified. This despair, this hopelessness, this inconsolability for such a word, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus felt and many others of Jesus' followers felt was swept away forever once they realized that Jesus was alive again. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scripture to us? I wonder if you can relate to that experience of your heart burning within you at this sense that something actually has happened that we weren't expecting about Jesus. I, I think I can. I can recall when the real significance of the resurrection really grabbed me personally. It was actually shortly before my mother was killed in a car accident. And so it really kicked in at that time. But I can remember this sense of, of, of awe, really, at the, at the realisation of what the resurrection actually meant when my heart almost burst with excitement that Christ really had risen from the grave. And it still does. Easter Day is my favorite day of the year. Prefer it to Christmas by a long short. Christ has risen. Death has been conquered. In fact, the Apostle Paul is so captivated by this thought that, as he says, death has been swallowed up in victory— He's so captivated by that thought that in a way that would put the Australian cricket team to shame, he sledges his opponent mercilessly. Death, he says, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He could say that not because he believed that Jesus' soul had somehow been snatched from the jaws of death and gone to live forever in heaven. That's not what the resurrection means. You actually don't need a resurrection. Most religions in the world believe in the immortality of the soul and don't believe in resurrection. You don't need a resurrection to believe in the soul leaving the body and going and floating on a cloud somewhere forever. That's not what causes Paul to sledge death. Nor does he believe that the body of Jesus was merely resuscitated to natural mortal existence again, like happened to Lazarus. Nobody sledged death after Lazarus was restored to life again. Jesus did not just return to ordinary, everyday existence to live for another 10 or 20 years and then later to die again. That's not what the resurrection means. Instead, we are told he conquered death itself. He vanquished the power of death. He faced death down. He tasted death in all its bitterness and irrevocability. And then he triumphed over it, And in so doing, he vanquished the power of death itself. He canceled it out forever. How? By living again in a new kind of human body that is no longer vulnerable to dying. And that's why Paul says that death, the final great enemy of God's purposes for physical creation, that's why he says death itself has been defeated. And it's been defeated because its nuclear rod power source of sin has been exhausted. So death, if you like, is a symptom of something else. And the something else, the cause, has been remedied in the work of Christ, and the symptom has been canceled out. In taking his own human, sin-affected, death-shackled body to the grave— yet without himself giving way to the sin that he struggled against as we talked about on Friday in doing that he ruptured the lordship of sin over the human body and he rose to life again and in so doing in so doing he inaugurated a new transformed kind of human bodily existence free from decay and sickness and aging and weakness and death As Paul puts it in Romans 6, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Why? Because death no longer has dominion over him in his risen state. And because it has no more dominion over Christ, it also has no more dominion over those who are in Christ. Because what he did, he did not for himself, but he did for us all. 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ, now just listen to this interesting move from one foot to the other that Paul does in this this sense of of acting on behalf of somebody else, because he moves from one foot to the other, he says, for the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died, he died for all So that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. You see, there's an incredible interchange of, of outflowing love. He died for them so that they might live in him and no longer live for themselves, but live for him who showed them what that means by dying for them. For those incorporated into Christ, death no longer signals the end of bodily existence. This present natural body still dies, we know that, and it decomposes, we know that, but that, because of the resurrection, is not the final word. When redemption is complete, when God's creation is finally restored, we will inherit an immortal body, a redeemed body, suited to life in a redeemed, transfigured Earth. You see, in biblical belief, human life is intrinsically bodily life, both now and in the future. According to the creation narratives, humans are in spirited bodies, or if you like, embodied spirits. The two are, are, are unbreakably united to each other. Because of sin, this present bodily state has fallen victim to the laws of death and decay. But because of Christ's resurrection, Bodily life has been freed from these laws, and when salvation is complete, we shall all assume a resurrection body, just like the body of the risen Jesus. Paul calls it a spiritual body, which is another interesting kind of idea of being in spirited bodies, a spiritual body. An immortal body that's freed from disease and weakness, a body that is perfectly adapted to life in God's kingdom of life and liberty, of justice and peace. But wait, there's even more. The resurrection of Jesus' material body is proof positive and a cast iron guarantee that God intends to redeem all material creation. You could say if all the resurrection was teaching us is that there was life after death, then there's a sense in which creation is lost because just a bit of it has been redeemed. But the resurrection is all about the redemption of materiality itself, the liberation of all created reality from its bondage to decay, so that it's restored to the condition that God intended for it at the beginning. Now, if that is news to you, I hope it's not, but if it's news to you, then you need to go and read Romans 8, because it's, to me, absolutely crystal clear there. Paul says... I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but the will of the one who subjected it in hope, and here's the line, that creation itself will be free from its bondage to decay, that creation itself will be free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits, not the whole shebang, we groan inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. It's all there. I'm not making this up. It's all there. Paul made it up. For in hope we were saved. Now hope what is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, there is enormous comfort in that. There is enormous hope in that conviction. Individually, it offers each of us comfort and courage and strength and hope in face of the unspeakable sadness and losses and tragedies of life, which none of us are actually exempted from. Death and disease still stalk us. But as the hymn puts it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I know, I know there's a tomorrow. That's the essence of Christian hope. We wait, Paul says, with patience for the redemption of our bodies. And we can wait with patience because we can be certain that it's going to happen. How can we be certain? Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, it's the work of the Spirit renewing our inner lives, which will eventually spill over to our outer lives, but it's also the evidence of the Spirit's power in raising Christ from the dead and transforming his mortal body into an immortal body suited for life in the new age. There's enormous personal hope in that. But there's also hope for us collectively, because it offers us the guarantee that God's redemptive will is to redeem and heal all that he has made and that it will one day be achieved, which means that we can take courage in the face of global despair, in the face of war and greed and famine and ecological destruction and the victimization of the vulnerable on this massive scale that we see. Think of Kenya just this last day. We can take courage in face of that because of the certain knowledge that God's redemptive healing power will eventually extend as far as sin has gone. It's something my father used to say that's really stayed with me. Grace must go as far as sin has gone in order to be really redemptive. We know sin has gone all the way and grace has gone all the way as well. And God's intention is to redeem and heal all that he's made. The world will not be destroyed. The world will be restored. Heaven and earth will be made brand new. Not replaced, but made like new. Life on earth will be permeated with the presence of God. And the vision of Revelation chapter 21 will come to pass. And again, this is one of my sort of clarion texts in my Christian life, really, because it's amazing how Christians have have reversed what this text actually says. The voice from heaven says, when the new Jerusalem descends from the sky to earth, the voice says, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. Not we have gone to dwell with God, but God will come to dwell with us on earth. He will dwell with us and we will be his people. Death will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see... See, I am making all things new. That is but the completion of what began on Easter Sunday. All creation will participate in this new beginning made possible by Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. And that is the ultimate basis, not only of Christian individual hope of salvation beyond death, it is the ultimate basis for the Christian understanding of social engagement in its, in its broader sense. As the first beneficiaries of this renewing salvation, we are called both to proclaim it and to extend God's healing intentions for the world. God's healing intentions for the world that are shown in the resurrection of Jesus. Actually demonstrated in the bodily resurrection of Christ. If Christ died to redeem all humanity and all creation from its subjection to sin and death and violence and injustice, if that's why he died, and if the resurrection proves that this restorative mission has been successful, then those of us who believe in his resurrection must also embody that same healing compassion and commitment to restoring justice that he did. It's only logical. It's just the way it ought to be. Knowing that victory is achieved, knowing that the future is assured, we must now in the present live out the reality of this restoring, resurrecting justice in the face of of the pain and death and violence of the world. So, Brian Edwards, the resurrection is a source of comfort. It's a source of absolute comfort and hope. But it's more than just a security blanket because it's also a source of mission. Because when you believe this stuff, you are energized, you are called out of the certainty of this conquest of evil to commit yourself to the same vision in your daily life. The resurrection is also a source of certainty. The one word more than any other that sums up the New Testament understanding of the meaning of Christ's resurrection Is the word vindication? The resurrection represents God's vindication of Jesus or God's public confirmation of Jesus, of who Jesus was, of what he said, and of what he did. See, how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we know that God really did do something in his life and mission? that accomplished the salvation of the entire world when the world looks as screwed up as it ever did. So where does this idea come from and where does the certainty of it come from? How do we know it's all true? And it's not just some pious pie-in-the-sky fantasy that we use as a security blanket to comfort ourselves in the darkness. How do we know? How do we know? Because God raised Jesus From the dead. That's how we know. That's how we know. God said yes to everything that Jesus stood for. The resurrection is.